Philip uh, Pullman's trilogy, His Dark Materials, has a very interesting take on God. The two heroes, uh, Lyra and Will, live under the oppressive and mysterious power of the magisterium, which is clearly the church, and they are intimidated by tales of the authority, who is reputed to be the creator of all things. But in the last book, The Amber Spyglass, they finally find him, the authority. And he is a pathetic, wispy little angel who has been locked in a box by the magisterium. Lyra says, oh, Will, he's still alive. But the poor thing... Will saw her hands pressing against the crystal, trying to reach into the angel and comfort him because he was so old and he was terrified, crying like a baby and cowering away in the lowest corner. He must be so old, I've never seen anyone suffering like that. Oh, Will, can't we let him out? Will cut through the crystal in one movement to help the angel out. Demented and powerless, The aged being could only weep and mumble in fear and pain and misery and he shrank away from what seemed like another threat. It's all right, Will said. We can help you hide, at least. Come on, we won't hurt you. A shaking hand seized his and feebly held on. The old one was uttering a a wordless, growing whimper that went on and on and grinding his teeth and compulsively plucking at himself with his free hand. But as Lyra reached in to help him out, he tried to smile and to bow. And his ancient eyes, deep in their wrinkles, blinked at her in innocent wonder. Between them, they helped the Ancient of Days out of his crystal cell. It wasn't hard, for he was as light as paper. And he would have followed them anywhere, having no will of his own, responding to simple kindness like a flower to the sun. But in the open air, there was nothing to stop the wind from damaging him, and to their dismay, his form began to loosen and dissolve. Only a few minutes later, he had vanished completely, and their last impression was of those eyes blinking in wonder and a sigh of the most profound and exhausted relief. Actually, Pullman is echoing a passage from uh, uh, the 19th century philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche in his um, book, Thus Spake Zarathustra. There, Nietzsche says this, He was a concealed God, addicted to secrecy. When he was young, this God out of the Orient, he was harsh and vengeful and he built himself a hell to amuse his favourites. But eventually, however, he became old and soft and mellow and pitying, more like a grandfather than a father, but most like a shaky old grandmother. And he sat in his nook by the hearth, wilted, grieving over his weak legs, weary of the world, weary of willing. One day he choked on his all-too-great pity. 
It's actually not difficult, I think, to see where Pullman and before him, Nietzsche, got their view of God. I'm going to any town or village in Europe and you will see great stone churches from the past but with very little present living evidence of God. It is as if in Europe God has sort of withered away and all we have left are empty buildings like scattered carcasses over the wasteland of Western Europe. Those of his uh, followers who still remain rather like Pullman's description meet in mysterious conclaves to appoint their rulers and prosecute their dissident butlers. It's not difficult to believe Pullman and Nietzsche's view of God's demise that somehow God has just faded away like a little old man. Even, even if you look at the old artwork of London and see the London skyline of a couple of hundred years ago, you'll, you'll see it punctuated with spires, dominated by the great dome of St. Paul's. But today, all of that is either obscured completely by blocks of flats or, or dwarfed by the gherkin and the shard. Actually, that was very like the world that Peter lived in. Peter, who wrote this letter to his um, first century readers. Peter grew up as a Jew. He, in his youth, would have travelled to Jerusalem at least once a year. There he would have seen uh, the magnificent temple. But all was not well in Judaism amongst the people of God. They actually lived under the, uh, uh, the power of Rome and things were steadily year on year getting worse and worse and worse. For the Jews, it wouldn't be long before, in fact, the temple would be completely destroyed by Rome, the people scattered, the nation destroyed. And to anyone living at that moment in history and growing up as a Jew, Frankly, it wasn't difficult to believe that God was pretty insubstantial. Actually, to make things worse, by the time he wrote this letter, Peter had joined what at first looked like a sort of evangelical sect of Judaism. It was a, a little offshoot which didn't have even the temple and no buildings or synagogues of any sort. These people looked completely vulnerable. They were given, in fact, a mocking nickname. They were called Christians. And it's these people that Peter writes to. Remember, if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, he, um, uh, he makes it very plain that he knows that they are vulnerable, scattered people. 1 Peter 1 verse 1, Peter, apostle of, Christ, of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia and so on. 
we saw in that when we first started looking at Peter, he describes them as home and not at home. Home in the sense that they are reconciled to God, they are chosen by God, they are secure with God. But frankly, not at home in that they still live in a hostile world. A world that, that is, seems much more powerful than them. A world in which they have to endure suffering and difficulty. Last week we saw Peter insisting in verses 13 um, and onwards of chapter 1 that nevertheless as they live as, uh, as exiles, as strangers, as foreigners in the world, they must live differently. And we said, we said last week, one of the extraordinary things is that the church, God's people, have lived differently in uh, nation after nation and down through history as they have sought to follow Jesus Christ. What Peter instructed them came true. But this week, in the third part of what serves as a sort of Peter's introduction to his letter before he gets on to some more uh, practical things, this week Peter is focusing on something a little bit different. He's he's focusing uh, particularly on those feelings that the first century Christians must have had of vulnerability. When I read um, Philip Pullman's description of the authority in the amber spyglass, when I read that, um, I wondered whether that might actually chime quite strongly with our world. I asked particularly my non-Christian friends whether it made sense to them, whether God actually does look rather like that weak and frail angel that Pullman describes. And universally they said, absolutely. He's just produced a, uh, a fictionalised rendering of what we see all over the place. And Christians feel that. Christians today, just as in Peter's day, Christians feel vulnerable so often as the world ignores the claims of Christ as powers far more powerful than them change laws or um, uh, force people, Christians to to, uh, leave their jobs or whatever. Christians feel that. What do Christians need to hear? Well, Peter says we need to hear that actually that perception is profoundly wrong. Underneath, behind the scenes, if you dig like Will and Lyra, you will not find a wispy, insubstantial angel just about to disappear in a puff of dust. You will find a solid, eternal rock who is called Jesus Christ. That's what Peter's going to tell us this morning. He's going to tell us it in two, from two different perspectives. He's going to talk about accepting that, that rock or that stone as it is here. And he's going to talk about rejecting that stone. So first, so you remember what we're talking about, 
accepting the stone. Verse 4, as you come to him, Jesus that is, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, he, uh, he says. He's um, describing, you see, Jesus' place in the world. Jesus was rejected by humans. That's impossible for us to miss in the Gospels. He was more or less rejected or deserted by everyone. And that wasn't just an unhappy accident, a sort of, a, a, a sort of tragic irony that this great teacher somehow got caught up in, in things, um, situations far more powerful than him. No, that was the inevitable consequence of his teaching, we learn in the Gospels. Because he got under people's skin. Yes, they applauded him at times and said, who has ever spoken like this? But slowly, actually, everybody started to oppose him. Revolutionaries were disappointed that he didn't use, uh, use violence. P- politicians hated him because he undermined their power. And even nice people became furious with him because they thought they were nice, but he uncovers their hypocrisy. And slowly, as the Gospels go on recording Jesus' life, you find everyone turning against him until there's a vast array of people at the end shouting crucify him even his disciples ran away at that point there's a story of the TUC leader the trade union congress uh, from a previous era he was um, he was at the annual conference which happens at this time of year it just happened uh, this year this was a good number of years ago and he he was on the stage um, looking out at, over, over the vast throng and he whispered to his neighbour, he said, look at all those people, he said. A vast number of people, all united against me. <laughs> well, that's how Jesus felt. All humanity sent Jesus to the cross because his teaching was so demanding so penetrating that actually people either had to reject him completely or fall at his feet. But he was chosen by God. Well, that's also very, very clear in the Gospels. Chosen by God, God's Son, precious to God. Here is Jesus' place in the world then, a place of ambivalence. But Peter's point is this. Jesus' lot is ours. As you come to him, he says, rejected by humans but chosen by God, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He doesn't bother to mention the rejected bit. They, scattered exiles out there in the provinces, knew all about that. His point is that they are living stones, just as Jesus is the living stones. They are coming to resemble Jesus. And as such, they are being built together into a spiritual house. He means a, he means a temple there, a place where God's people meet him. He shifts his metaphor a bit to try and expand the image then. He goes on to describe them as priests 
within the temple, as well as stones that make up the temple, offering spiritual sacrifices. Notice, every Christian is a priest. There is no theology in the New Testament of a separate priesthood. Every single Christian is a priest having access to God. And the spiritual sacrifices that he talks about, they're not some ritualized offerings of bread and wine or anything like that. No, Romans 12 verse 1 makes it plain that they, you offer your bodies, your whole self as a spiritual sacrifice. It is that total offering of ourselves that, that uh, Peter is talking about. Here's the privilege. Then, we, like Jesus, are being, uh, are being made into living, solid stones, shaped to fit together to be a place where God's people meet him. And he says, that's what the Bible was always talking, always expecting. In Scripture, verse 6, it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Peter is quoting from the prophet Isaiah there. And Isaiah was describing or using language of rebuilding Jerusalem and rebuilding its temple in um, Uh, some future era. But actually, even in Jewish thought, in Peter's day, the rabbis had begun to see this cornerstone that is mentioned here as a person, not just a bit of masonry. So Peter has slightly adjusts his quotation from Isaiah to make that absolutely clear. The one who trusts in him, did you see that? Will never be put to shame was always God's plan to do this, Peter's saying. To make Jesus into a great cornerstone of a new temple of God's people. The vast edifice of Jerusalem with all that masonry, well, that's of no further interest. Let Rome destroy it, as Rome did in AD 70. That is not a big deal, says Peter. Because God's eternal, solid purposes are now located in his church. Notice, notice a few things. Let me just emphasize a few things about this imagery to, to get it home to us. Notice his emphasis in verse 5, for instance, on being built together. You are not according to Peter, part of that unshakable building that he's describing, unless you are integrated into the people of God. There is no such thing as a Christian who has nothing to do with a local church. That category doesn't exist in the New Testament. If you are, if you are that, then frankly the New Testament would find it difficult to describe you as a Christian. All Christians are being built together as they engage in their local church. Notice too, the absolute centrality of Jesus. He is the cornerstone. God's church is not 
fundamentally an institution. When God's church becomes institutionalised, frankly, it tends to spend an awful lot of its time trying to preserve something that's long ago died and, and find it very difficult to keep up with the real life and building that God is often doing. God's church is not built around a series of traditions. It is not fundamentally a moral code. It is not fundamentally a particular lifestyle. If any of those things take centre stage, in fact, it degenerates at best into a quaint club and at worst into a nasty clique. God's church is not centrally those things. And it is not, notice, built around any, any uh, normal uh, person. I can't tell you how many times Local people in these, in these streets have, uh, uh, have talked to me uh, about this church as your church, Peter. Not, not meaning it's the church to which I belong, but the church that somehow I've, I've created. And perhaps they're trying to be, to, to, to be nice, but it is absolute rubbish. If this church is worth the name of a church, it is not mine, it is Jesus Christ's church. And I hope everyone here knows that profoundly. A true church is built around Jesus. Around his life and teaching, which... which which is not just a moral code when you see it, but is, but is teachings which subvert conventional expectations, where legalists are exposed and alienated and, uh, and people who were rejected are welcomed. God's church is built around Jesus' death for our sins, so that we are united in our need for forgiveness, united in trusting in Christ's death on the cross for, uh, for that forgiveness. And God's church is built around Jesus' resurrection in which he rose to bodily, physical life, which is our hope, our hope of physical life in a new heaven and a new earth. The cornerstone of God's church is Jesus. And notice how we accept that stone. Peter uses two different ways of describing it, one in verse 4 and one in verse 6. In verse 4 he describes coming to him. That is the essence of accepting Christ is, is simply turning to him. That's called repentance. It may involve giving up a whole load of bad habits and, and sins. It may involve a thousand and one things but in its essence it is simply coming to Jesus. And then in verse 6 it's described as trusting in him. Because we have our future eternal hope only on the basis of Christ's death on the cross, which we can do nothing but simply trust or entrust ourselves to. Lastly, notice in Peter's description the emphasis that Peter puts on shame. Did you see that? For no one who trusts in him will ever be put to shame. Shame was a very big thing in the Roman world. One commentator says this, Christians were subjected to a barrage of verbal abuse designed to demean, discredit and shame the believers as social and moral deviants, endangering the common good. 
This procedure of public shaming was employed as a means of social control with the aim of pressuring the minority community to conform to conventional values and standards of conduct. In many ways, we today are, are more vulnerable to shame than in other, in other moments of history. More like the first century. And we feel the pressure today, don't we? To conform and not to, be, not to stand out and be exposed as people who are different. And Peter is saying, actually the world may shame you. That's what it does. But you won't be put to shame in the sight of God. You will be honoured as you trust in Jesus. So, Christian, says Peter, as you accept Jesus, you can have the dignity of knowing that he is the eternal, living, solid stone on which God has always intended to build his great temple, his community, and nothing will shake it. Very, very easy for Christians to lose confidence in our culture, which at best treats Christianity with ambivalence. And Peter says, stand up, be confident, be bold, be unashamed, because you belong to the eternal rock who is Christ. And then he moves on to rejecting the stone. The first thing God does as people reject Jesus is that he builds his church anyway. See that verse 7? Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become The cornerstone. Once again, uh, he quotes from the Old Testament. The Old Testament, this time Psalm 118, predicted it. The psalmist there uh, pictures a stone which is deemed entirely unsuitable for for the great building that that they are building. And so the the stonemasons cast it aside. But actually, they judged wrongly. A master builder comes along. The very next verse in in, uh, Psalm 118 says, The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. A master builder, God, comes along, sees this rejected stone and says, This is the one that I will use for my cornerstone. In other words, the psalmist says, and Peter says, It frankly is irrelevant that the world rejects this Jesus. God is going to build his church anyway with him. And that is always the case. I mean, in Oxford, over the last couple of decades, actually something quiet but quite extraordinary has been happening. We have in Oxford probably about twice as many evangelical Christians worshipping uh, in, in, uh, in evangelical churches 
uh, in Oxford now as we did uh, 20 years ago and it continues to grow. Maudlin Road at the moment is growing as the people who found it difficult to find a seat this morning will, will testify. And we're not the only one. Every church in Oxford, every evangelical church in Oxford is growing. God is establishing his church just as he said he would. Hence, um, we as a church are, are starting, uh, are starting a, a central Temple Cowley, um, sorry, a Temple Cowley um, a church, uh, a little bud, which we hope will grow because there just needs to be growth. Hence, a few of us are saying, let's do something in the centre as well to add to the, uh, uh, to the witness that is already there because actually all the churches in the centre are full to overflowing and there is room for more. That's what God does. That's what God is doing. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I remember um, 25 years ago going to um, uh, Nepal for a summer and it was the first time that I saw real opposition to Christians anywhere in the world. In fact, over the last 24 years, 25 or so years, the opposition in, in Britain has sort of just quietly racked up. But it was more significant than it a long way more than it is here. And uh, a church leader took me aside before I came back to the UK and he said, whatever you do, don't make the main purpose of what you say to Christians being to make them feel, make British Christians feel sorry for our persecutions. I've been to your country, he said. I've seen the kind of church that generates where, there is, uh, where it's very easy to be a Christian. He said, and frankly, I would rather be here where it's a bit pressurised than in Britain where there's less pressure. And over the last 20, 25 years, the church in Nepal has, has exploded with growth. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That is how God works. The world rejects Jesus, but God builds his church anyway. And then the second thing that Peter wants to emphasise in this context of rejection is found in verse 8. The stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. This time he's quoting from Isaiah 8 yet again to show that this was always God's plan. But uh, there he takes us back to this image, remember, of the builders who've got this stone and they say, no, that's useless for, for us, we'll throw it aside. And he imagines the builders then, having built their edifice, stepping back to admire what they have produced and tripping over the stone that they threw aside. Indeed, he intensifies it, not just stumbling. He says they fall. The word has uh, the sense of being of falling into a trap or a snare, a man trap. 
That is the awesome reality of what is going on behind the scenes. I have to say to you, and and it's a very serious and solemn truth, no one who rejects Jesus gets away with it. Everybody will be judged in the last day and they will be judged on the basis of how they treated Jesus. Oh, but I'm not rejecting Jesus. You you, you say, you know, I'm leading a good life. I'm doing good things. Well, they may be very good, but Jesus said far more than that. Listen to what he said at one point in Matthew 10, for instance. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus didn't ask us just to lead a slightly nicer life. He called us to entrust ourselves entirely to him, to love him more than anything else. He doesn't ask for perfection. Nobody could give him that. But he does ask that we say, in principle, everything that I have and everything that I am, Jesus Christ, I surrender to you. And Peter says, the consequence of that is awesome. For those who have accepted that Jesus Christ, you are being built into a solid, eternal building. A new temple where God is present, which will never be shaken. And if you have rejected that Jesus, then sooner or later you're going to stumble over him and fall. It is that stark, says Peter. Now I know that we live in a world where most people think that is absolute rubbish. Where most people think that the Pullman view of God is what's really going on. But I ask you to consider, does that really make sense? As the people of God have have survived and thrived now for 2,000 years, as churches in this country continue to grow despite the opposition, and there is no uniform magisterium that somehow organises it, that life just springs up. There's any more reasonable to believe that behind this world there is a solid rock, a living stone, Jesus Christ. And what we do with him makes all the difference to all of us for all eternity.